coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. Again, you know, we talk about Scripture being literal as evangelicals, but if we can't take figures of speech, then we're forced into absurd positioning. Welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, co-host and executive director of the Joshua Fund. Today we're going to talk about evangelicals in Israel and the passion that historically evangelicals have had for the state of Israel and for the people of Israel. I'm joined today, of course, by our founder of the Joshua Fund and our co-host on this broadcast, Joel Rosenberg. Joel, great to be with you. Uh, You're in Jerusalem again, right? Carl Shalom from Jerusalem. It's great to chat with you, especially about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Amen. Well, you know, it's amazing to many people who observe Israel and the Israeli people that evangelicals in America, the the most passionate followers of Jesus Christ, have such a deep love and uh, reverence historically for Israel and the state of Israel. Uh, What can you attribute that to? And especially considering that many Israelis consider evangelicals and evangelism to be anathema to Jewish identity. Yeah, wow. Wow. So there's there's a lot in there. I'll try to give them in segments, and you can uh, ask me for more if you want. Um, you know, from our first podcast, we talked about what is an evangelical, and one of the things we said is that, that in the National Association of Evangelicals sort of document that sort of summarizes it. Well, what's how would we define one? One of the the, the distinctives of being an evangelical is that the Bible is our highest source of authority. We may, and we do, you know, draw from pastors and ministry leaders. We maybe read books, I hope people do, by certain Christian authors. No, I mean, but at the heart, we're testing everything that we read, everything that we watch against what the Bible actually says so that we always have what the Bible itself calls a plumb line, right? You know, you're, you're trying to make sure is the wall straight, and in the old days, uh, people used this thing called a plumb line to make sure the wall was straight, right? There was an external uh, check to see, are you building something straight? And that's where evangelicals look to for authority, right? They may look to others for input, opinion, counsel, but ultimately it has to be true to the word of God. Otherwise, we discount it or dismiss it. Now, when you do that, you go to a verse from uh, the book of Acts where the apostle Paul is defending himself Uh, to a group of Christians, a group of followers of Jesus, and he says, listen, I did not shrink or hesitate or fail to teach you the whole counsel of Scripture. Now, in the New Testament modern sense of that, we believe that from Genesis, the first sentence of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all the way to the end of Revelation, that's our Scriptures. And when you read that book, the Bible. When you when you study that story, you find such a high percentage is about the story of God calling Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and 
Jacob's sons to himself and to create a people and a nation and a set of promises. Mm -hmm. So now it's true, and we've talked about this in other shows, I'll just say that, you know, for many centuries when people didn't have a Bible for themselves, right, and they were dependent on whatever the priest would tell them, if the priest wasn't reading the story of the birth of Israel, the troubles of Israel, the Mm -hmm. trials of Israel, the, the disobedience of Israel, God's mercy on Israel, and the cycles of that, you might not understand how much God loves Israel and the Jewish people. But for those of us who have Bibles, <laughs> thank you, Mr. <laughs> Gutenberg and, and others, you know, anybody with a Berg at the last, at the end of their name, I, I you know, I'm often drawn, but anyway, particularly, yes. But once we got the Bible into our hands, not just Protestants, but eventually Catholics as well, and Orthodox, the more you read the Bible, the more you see God's love for Israel, his concerns when we go astray and so forth. But that's where our love for Israel and the Jewish people come from. And when you know the word of God, the more deeply rooted in the scriptures, the more you're going to understand this and have this love and even a passion. And uh, Paul himself called it a zeal for his people. And the less you, you may call yourself a Christian, but the less you study the scriptures, or at least from the beginning to end, it's more likely, not definitive, but more likely you're not going to understand what's going on about Israel and where that fits in, why is that relevant in, yeah. you know, in the New Testament era? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think in a future podcast, we're going to get to that idea of teaching the Bible brings people to an appreciation for God's plan for in love for Israel. So in summary, what you're saying really is, if you love the Bible as evangelicals do and uh, historically do, and as you study and get into what the Bible says about Israel, the more you see God's love and God's concern for the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the, all of those things that are certainly at the center of the conversation right now. Absolutely. But then something went boom. Yeah. <laughs> Evangelicals for several hundred years took the Bible literally. Okay, now when Jesus says I'm a door, he doesn't mean he's a physical door, but he's but he's literally a door. He's the doorway into heaven, right? And there, so you, yes, there are metaphors. Yes, there right. are similes. Yes, there we have to factor those into our understanding. But basically, if God said he's, he's going to recreate, resurrect the nation state of Israel, then we take it seriously, like. I guess he'll do that. I don't know when. Yeah. So even Jekyll's believed this, these prophecies, and that Jews would come back to the Holy Land and rebuild the ancient ruins and so forth. Well, then came the boom, May 14th, 1948. Hmm. And even Jekyll's who were living at that time, and I've talked to many, many, including major pastors who were young at that time, but have become yeah. you know the ones we talk about today. Wow, how often in human history can you say – Here's an ancient prophecy that nobody thought was going to come true, even Christians, even our church Mm -hmm. fathers, and then boom, it happened right in front of your eyes. So 48 became a thunderclap in modern evangelicalism, but even more in certain ways was 1967, June, because that was the year, and I happened to be born two months before that, so I can't speak from personal experience. (laughs) But in June of 1967, 
the Arab world had surrounded Israel and Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, was threatening to throw the Jews into the sea. Mm. In other words, we're going to invade and we're going to kill you all or kick you out. Mm. Okay? There was such fear in Israel that they were digging trenches for mass graves in every park. Every park mm. in Israel, they were digging mass graves because wow. they believed this war was coming and they believed that it was very likely they could be wiped out. Wow. And even juggles all over the world were thinking, well, either they were praying for the peace of Jerusalem or they were like, well, I guess that wasn't a fulfillment of prophecy because, you know, the, Israel's toast. Yeah. And then, dramatically, in six days, Israel defeated all of its Arab enemies. Wow. Uh, it tripled its land holdings, including the biblical heartland of the Bible, which is not Tel wow. Aviv, but is Judea and Samaria, what the world calls the West Bank. Mm. And most famously and dramatically, Israel reunified Jerusalem as the capital of Israel for the first time in like 3,000 years since you know King David and King Solomon and, and, and the other Israeli kings. So Israelite kings. This was huge. It was so unexpected, and it was so obvious that this little tiny country, yeah, we have a good army and everything, but God had protected a nation from mm. a second Holocaust. And that combined with 48, but I would say 67 was not just the thunderclap, but it was the lightning strike. Yeah. And I know usually thunder, lightning comes before thunder, but in this analogy, I'm going to say the lightning came second. And it was so dramatic that suddenly people thought, God is with these people. Now, they don't know Jesus yet, but wow, we've got to pay attention. And people got excited because prophecy was coming true, which was a proof that the Bible was true, which was something that people, Christians, could say to even atheists and agnostics. Do you realize what's happening? And, of course, it was just an affirmation in the most dramatic of ways of watching the Bible literally come true. And that reaffirmed the faith of evangelicals who didn't need that, right? Evangelicals had been walking with the Lord and loving the scriptures for a long time. But this was a, a massive B-12 shot. And people were psyched. And they were like, wow, uh, this is exciting. And that's, I think, where faith turned into passion. Mm. So really what we're talking about is this is the understanding evangelicals have had in the last 70 years about the modern state of Israel. I think we would agree that, you know, the historic biblical view of Israel, everyone says, yes, that was a, a thing. But we we see different views emerge on the modern state of Israel. Sure. And, and why is that? I mean, evangelicals would love to continue, like you said, pointing to Scripture being fulfilled in the modern state of Israel. But there's some differing views in, in Western yeah. Christianity. Perhaps you could highlight some of that. I will, and I'll, I'll do that by giving, I think, the third piece of the passion. Uh, <laughs> one was the birth or the rebirth of the state of Israel. Second was the dramatic protection of Israel by God. The lightning. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the lightning in 67. But the third part was, as evangelicals began considering, wow, if these ancient prophecies about Israel being reborn, Jews coming back to the land, rebuilding the ancient ruins, you know, making the deserts bloom, if all of those things are happening right before our eyes, that 
seems like it could suggest that we're getting closer to the return mm. of Jesus himself. This was now thunder, lightning, and steroids. All right, I'm totally missing, <laughs> mixing up my, my metaphors. But this was passion on steroids. I'm not recommending drugs, but people were excited because they thought, look, if you take the passage, let's say, of Matthew chapter 24, right, and you just look at it and you say, well, what – the disciples were asking for one sign. They were asking Jesus on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem, give us – would you give us one sign that would tell us when you will be coming back, something we can watch for? Now, Jesus could have given a very Washington political answer. No comment. Next question. <laughs> But he didn't. He gives this huge list. Matthew 24 records it. Luke chapter 21. Mark chapter 13. There's a list. You could make a checklist. And over the years, people started going, well, what's on the list? Well, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be insurrections and revolutions. There'll be plagues, like horrific diseases spreading throughout the world. There'll be economic trauma. There'll be uh, natural weather and climate disasters and, and trauma. There will be uh, false religions, false mm-hmm. messiahs, uh, false prophets, false teachers. People will turn a- against each other. There'll be lawlessness. That, uh, you know, and as you look at that list and you look at the newspaper or, or <laughs> you know, the CBS Evening News with Walter yeah. Cronkite, you're like, oh, that's the way it is. You know, you were like – you know, and, and Billy Graham famously talked about how he loved to read the Bible with one hand and the newspaper with the other. And he would often cite trends and events that were happening that he read in the newspaper or on the CBS Evening News or the other networks. It wasn't what's called um, isogesis. Hey, this is what the newspaper says, so probably the Bible says it somewhere. It was yeah. exogesis. It was taking the Bible and saying – I think that's what's happening. Let's look at it. Let's let's see. And that sense of prophecy coming true and that leading somewhere, not just it being good, encouraging that God is true to his word and his promises, but that it was leading to the second coming of Christ. And before that, in my view, the rapture, hmm. this was super electrifying. Yeah. Now, to your question then, which is why doesn't every evangelical believe that? Well, it comes from a wide range of answers. Um, first, at the core, is a word that we might, you know, the audience may not hear much or use much, but I'll use the word hermeneutics. And you're like, who? I know Herman. Hermeneutics. <laughs> yeah, hermeneutics. Uh, the question is, how do you approach understanding the Bible? Right. If you make a decision going into the Bible that most of the prophecies have already been fulfilled, and they really got completed almost entirely by 70 AD, then there are no future prophecies. Everything is really symbolic. It's metaphoric. So when we talk about the rebirth of Israel, we're really talking about the sort of the the tremendous growth and and resurrection of maybe the church when it sort of gets weakened, right? Uh, So anyway, we could and we may in this or other episodes talk about specific ways that people interpret the Bible. But this is a big one, and that is that almost every prophecy has come true by 70 AD. And so Hmm. 
you're not forward looking. You're not thinking, well, these prophecies are telling us what to watch for as we get closer for the return mm. of Christ. If you don't really believe that, then you're not looking for that. And the evidence that's mounting doesn't encourage you. Mm. So that's one. The other major one would be what's known as supersessionism. That's a theological term that theologians and seminaries and Bible colleges use. More normally, people call it replacement theology. Got it. And that's the idea that, well, Jews rejected the Messiah, Jesus. Therefore, God rejected the Jewish people. And he is done with the Jewish people. He has no intention of keeping those promises to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, because they blew it. Hmm. And therefore, God has replaced the promises he made to Israel and the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, he, and he's replaced that with the church. Therefore, hmm. every time you see a prophecy that might be future-related, you need to do what you might do on your computer. Search for that term. And then take, you know, search for the word Israel and then, right. you know, find and then replace. You put the word church in and just flip mm. it in your mind. So these are, no, we're not looking for the Israel to be reborn as a country or the Jews to come back to the land. Those mm. are metaphors about how God is going to show great mercy and growth to the Christian body. Now, there are those prophecies, too. That's a separate issue. But if you're hermeneutic, if your theological premise going into the Bible is God's done with the Jewish people, hmm. then you would conclude that nothing that's happening in Israel is prophetic. It might be interesting geopolitically. It might not mean you're an anti-Semite or you know against the nation of Israel. But you're not thinking this is exciting. It's not telling you anything about God. It's just curious. And about 20% of the Christian body in the United States believes that, uh, supersessionism. Mm. And, and roughly 20% of pastors in America uh, hold that. to some version of that. There are, there are some variations. Well, that's really helpful, Joel. We're going to get into some of the incredible implications of that in just a second. Uh, but we need to take a break right here uh, briefly. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, let us know. Go to joshuafund.com and use the Contact Us form to provide feedback. Likewise, if you'd like this podcast to continue, you can donate through our giving page, and you can find that link in the upper right-hand corner at joshuafund.com. Joel. What you just said about the differing views, the 20% of the the American evangelical church that hold to supersessionism or American Christians in general, that has some implications for the way we view Israel. And what's fascinating to me is some of these things can be extremely polarizing. Can you talk a little bit about how some of that, the way we see scripture and the way we see this understanding I guess I'd also like to ask, maybe we can put this one in, in front of that. Joel, we just talked about how you 
see the Bible and how you understand the Bible kind of leads you to either view Israel as a fulfillment of prophecy or as just a historical curiosity, I guess. An anomaly. <laughs> An anomaly. <laughs> but, Inexplicable, uh, like a UFO. <laughs> yeah, so something like that. But where do people find any evidence that God has abandoned his promises to Israel? Well, you don't find them in the Bible. Um, <laughs> but obviously, if you think that, if you already believe this, then you might find verses, passages that you say, aha, see, this is the proof. Mm-hmm. So but what I mean by that is God gets pretty angry at my people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel throughout the Bible. And that's not anti-Semitism. He's the creator of Israel. Right. He's the creator of the Jewish people. And when he gets mad at us, he's right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, you know, to cite uh, Chevy Chase from the 70s, you know, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. Right. So this is like God saying, like, I'm the God of Israel and you're not. So when I say you're you've blown it, I'm mad and I'm, you know, but what's interesting about every single one of those passages, you can find the verses. And if you just quote to your church or to your your Bible study or on television or, you know, wherever at a conference or something, if you cite those verses, there are plenty of verses where God is mad at the Jews. He's like, look, I'm abandoning you. He says that sometimes. But if you read a little bit further, he says, but not forever. I have made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will keep those. Not for your sake. Like sometimes he says, I'm not going to keep my promises because of any merit in you. I'm going to keep my promises because that's what I do. I'm the God who makes promises, and I keep them. I make covenants. And I keep them. And the promise, the covenant he made with Abraham was unconditionally. He didn't say, Abraham, if you're good and you never sin and you never try to you know, lie about, you know, your wife is so beautiful. You don't lie to a king and tell him, you know, oh, it's not really true. You know, and, oh, she's my sister. You know, if, if you're totally good and you never make a, a mistake ever, then I'm going to give you a, a land and a people to be the patriarch of. No, God says, I'm doing it. So blow it or not, I want you to follow me, but I'm, I'm keeping this because it's my name that I'm defending. So that's important. And that when I read or I hear pastors or ministry leaders or whomever citing those passages, they're a hundred percent out of context. It's true. The verses are there, but you just have to read a little bit further. Let me give you one example Yeah. in a, in a new Testament context. So, you know, one of the worst and most vicious anti-Semitic attacks by people who call themselves Christians against Jewish people is that they are Christ killers. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And, I mean, it's true that some of our Jewish people did want Jesus to be killed 2,000 years ago. It's also true that the people who did it were the Romans. So I would argue that we're both at fault, both Jews and Gentiles, in the macro. But in yeah. individually, I didn't do that. I'm Jewish. I didn't kill Jesus. Right? Okay. Now, the reason that's important is not just because of some lunatic left-wing or right-wing extremist anti-Semite who says it. It's what That worries me. But what worries me more inside the church is people who said, God is done. 
Like the Jews blew it, and they they will cite sometimes, often, the Apostle Paul trying to preach the gospel to Jewish people in the book of Acts, and they won't listen. And so he says, I'm shaking my, you know, the dust off my feet. I, I'm leaving you. I'm going to the Gentiles, right? Hmm. That almost seems like the definitive passage in the New Testament that says God is so frustrated with his people. Not only did they kill Jesus, they're not listening to his main, you know, most prominent apostle, Paul. And he's like, I'm done. I'm washing my hands in this case. Uh, dust, you know, dusting off my feet. Mm-hmm. The problem with that passage is it's, it's completely out of context. He does say it, but the very next passage in the beginning of the next chapter, where is Paul? He's in another synagogue. And he's sharing the gospel. And Jewish people there go, oh, okay. And they believe, not all of them. So I want to yeah. summarize this because I know we could go on. This is These are many people write books on this. If Jesus has rejected all Jewish people after the crucifixion, which might add mm-hmm. came with the resurrection, but after the crucifixion, if when the Jewish leaders said, let his blood be upon my head, they did say that, right? But remember, some of the Pharisees came to faith in Jesus after right. that. Right? Joseph Arimathea was one of them. Mm-hmm. So if you just read the book of Acts, you don't even have to go through the rest of history. You just look, read at the book of Acts. How does Paul get saved? He's a Pharisee, mm-hmm. and he hates Jesus, and he's doing everything he can to destroy the early church. He gets saved and becomes the greatest apostle, not just to the Gentiles, but his calling in Acts 8. God says specifically, You'll be my witness to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the sons of Israel. And while more Gentiles come to faith in Jesus because of Paul's ministry than Jews, many Jews do come to faith. But how did Paul get saved if God has (laughs) replaced the church and and the Jews have no hope anymore? Interesting. Now, the one other variation of that, and how did I get saved? And how did a million Jewish people in the world right this second who love Jesus, how did we get saved? But the one variation on this to be so that people hear it is pastors or theologians who would say, well, okay, it's not that Jews can't get saved, but the state of Israel, all of those prophecies Mm. are over and only the gospel remained, which you know, as Paul said in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and mm-hmm. then to the Greek. God cares for Jews and wants Jews to get saved. And so the gospel is true for everybody. But the prophecies about the state of Israel, now that that's those are not operative any longer. And and so that would be the variation Interesting. on the overall theme. And I know, I know pastors and theologians who I've had these conversations with, and it's it's a fascinating conversation. I want to have more conversations with people like this. Well, you know, I think if we took that by extension, then any national or ethnic identity would cease to exist, right? We would no longer be anyone if we became Christians. You know, we would have to give up our our calling card to be Germans or Swiss or Australians. Well, or, well that's you know, an interesting I mean, point, Carl, because, <laughs> because people play both sides of that. On, on, yes. On, spiritually... Paul says to us, there is no difference between Jew and Greek, male or female, slave or free. 
What he means is legally before the cross and the, right. and the offer of salvation. But if you take it the wrong way, you're like, well, see, you got transgenderism. There's no men. There's no women. Paul said it. I'm not just making this stuff up. Paul said there is no man and there is no woman. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, then there are, there actually are. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Like, and it, yeah. it's a metaphor. Again, you know, we talk about scripture being literal as evangelicals, but if we can't take figures of speech, then we're forced into absurd positioning, you know, as, as that kind well, of conclusion. It, yes, would be, that's true. Right? But I think it's like God's rejected. True. God hasn't rejected the Jewish people, but he's rejected the modern state of Israel. You know, that's a, that's kind of an absurd position when you look at it through the lens of of scripture's metaphor well it, it's absurd but it's more widely held than what you and i believe hmm. and yeah, so you know it's interesting and when you swim in the waters of people who get why israel is important to god and to us then we can forget that most of christendom doesn't believe this so hmm. if you take the vast majority of the roman catholic theological position. They've worked hard to correct the issue of anti-Semitism in the church, and they've been strong against that. They don't have a direct day-to-day hostility that they're trying to get rid of Israel. Uh, a number of priests take a number of positions that are, that are quite detrimental, and they're super critical of us. But basically, Roman Catholic theology does not believe that the prophecies mean that Israel will be reborn as a country in in the last days of history. Uh, Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, most Lutheran theology doesn't believe this. Most modern Methodist theology does not believe this. Most Mm. Presbyterian theologians don't believe this. It doesn't mean they all do. I know many Presbyterians and many Methodists and many Lutherans and and, and Roman Catholics who love Israel and do get it from the scriptures, but as denominations, they mostly don't. So if you look at that, and then we haven't talked about yet the the historic churches, the Eastern Orthodox churches, you know, if you're Syrian Orthodox, until recently, you were not legally allowed to say the word Israel – in a Syrian Orthodox church because wow. you couldn't say it in Syria. Wow. So you weren't reading the Old Testament, and if you were, you were dipping in. You know how hard it is, Carl? You do, because you're, <laughs> yeah. you're a trained theologian. I'm just making this stuff up. No, uh, <laughs> I'm a lay person, uh, but you actually have the letters after your name. But, but it's very difficult to read the Old Testament and not mention Israel, the word, because... <laughs> It's everywhere. So you really are doing, you know, you're basically doing what what, uh, Thomas Jefferson did with the Bible. He didn't like the Bible. So Mm -hmm. he took a pair of scissors and he would cut out passages that he said, no, 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 that's not true. I don't know how he thought he was the arbiter of of truth or not, but whatever. He was a great president, (laughs) not a bad secretary of state, but as a theologian, he was atrocious. And he created Swiss cheese out of the Bible. These parts I like and these parts, no, no. So that's what the Syrian Orthodox Church was doing. Uh, The Greek Orthodox Church and and the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt and elsewhere, pretty much the same. And it, it allowed Christians in the Arab world to essentially hold to their government's position, which was to hate Israel and the Jewish people. Mm. And the churches, even if individual believers didn't believe that God hated Israel, 
you can't find, you couldn't for decades find any pastor in the Arab world that taught from the Old Testament about God's love and plan for Israel and the Jewish people. And even if you believed it, you certainly couldn't say it without being arrested and tortured and possibly even killed. So yeah. that kept a large swath of Christendom, right, far away from even discussing the topic. Yeah. And that's what makes the passion of evangelical Christians for Israel and for what the Bible teaches about Israel actually unique. Hmm. One last point on that. Yeah. Jewish people are noticing, Israelis are noticing over time that evangelicals are distinct. Jews look at the world historically in categories. There are the people that hate us and want to annihilate us. Right. Okay? <laughs> then there's the people who hate us and are helping the people who want to annihilate us. Mm -hmm. Then there's the people that don't care about us and aren't standing up against the people who hate us and are trying to annihilate us. Mm -hmm. Then there's the Jewish community. <laughs> and then the question historically has been for Jews, where do we put the Christians? Yeah. At certain seasons of history, Christians, or at least people who call themselves followers of Christ, were annihilators. Yeah. The sure. Crusaders, the Inquisitors in the in the Spanish Inquisition, yeah. and so forth. Horrible. Even many Nazis yeah. were going to church on Sunday and then mm -hmm. gassing Jews and executing them all week. So Truth. how how would a Jew think that's that's what a Christian is? They hate us and they want to kill us and annihilate us. But there other seasons Christians were just silent about Jews or I mean, most people didn't talk about Israel because there was seemed to be no prospect of an Israel for 1948 years so what, or 1900 years. What are we talking about? Why bother? But over time, over the last 70 years, and I would say almost specifically over the last 54 years mm -hmm. since 67, 67, Jews are like, who are these evangelicals? What does this even mean? Why do they love us when all other Christians in their view – seem to hate us yeah uh, it is fascinating and it you know the way in which uh, many in israel is uh, jews have looked at christians over time isn't favorable and and uh that's a problem evangelicals well, it's a mirror, and, to be clear it's a mirror of how christians have looked at jews yes exactly you, i was going to say jesus yeah. you're horrible god's done with you and you know and even it's martin like, luther we talked about that on another show yeah. um Martin Luther wrote a screed against Jews at the end of his life. Now, he was yeah. ill. He was going into dementia, but he wrote it. It was mm -hmm. called On the Jews and Their Lies. And he called for Jews to be killed. The synagogues destroyed. There's uh, Bibles burned. The Torah burned. They're, they're, mm -hmm. And even though Hitler was anti-Christian, destroying true followers of Jesus in every possible way and forcing pastors and priests to teach Nazi theology rather than Christianity, still to persuade a Lutheran country, he cited Luther. Yeah. And uh, that was bad. So, yeah. so Jews were in many ways reflecting what they, how they were being treated. They weren't being loved. Mm -hmm. So they thought, well, those people hate us. And it must be because the New Testament is an anti-Semitic handbook. Yeah, I've heard that said, that certain Jews who've come to meet 
personally with Jesus and to come to faith in him, you know, shared their view when the first time they picked up a New Testament, they thought they were going to read nothing but anti-Jewish polemics and were shocked. One said, I thought it was written by Italians. You know, <laughs> so he said right, it was right. shocked it, when it was written by Jews, you know, primarily. That's a good point. The, the Jewishness <laughs> of Jesus, of the apostles, of the early church— it has just been comes out. Whitewashed. They, you know, the, the 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 Roman Catholic Church canceled the Jewish culture, yeah, out of the Bible. And if you didn't have a Bible of your own, you would never know. So it, never know. People it, right. didn't really have a chance to to test what the priests were teaching them. Yeah. To switch gears a, a bit, just as sure. we think about this, you know, evangelicals do have a passion historically for Israel. But is it possible, Joel, to love Israel too much? as an evangelical? It's not possible to love Israel too much because love is limitless and Jesus loved us so much that he gave, you know, or God loved us so much that he gave his only son. Uh, You can never love somebody too much, but you can get a warped view of what love looks like, of how love Mm. operates in the real world. And so there are some who idealize Israel and or the Jewish people. And they're so pro-Israel, which I'd prefer to them being anti-Israel, but they're so pro-Israel, they forget that the Bible's emphasis is not really on Israel. It's on the God of Israel. Hmm. Right? So it's not really about the country. It's about the God who created the country. And what what is the country? How do we understand God better because of the strengths and weaknesses, successes and failures of the country, right? This is a New Testament principle that Paul, the Pharisee, uh, right, of the Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm more Jewish than all you people, he, he used to say, but, he, but I count it rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. My Jewish roots and identity aren't important to me if they keep me from Jesus, which they did. <laughs> And they're not important for you if they mess you up in your relationship with Jesus or keep you from Jesus. But Paul himself, in in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he says, look to Israel as an example. Unfortunately, historically, there's a lot of what I call dirty laundry about Israel in the Bible. Meaning God is saying, this is my standard, and Israel blew it. And here's the story, right? Here's my standard for King David, whom I raised up, the youngest son from the littlest family in the smallest town, in the smallest tribe. I made him the king. And then he sleeps with Bathsheba and has her husband murdered. Not good. Not good. And that was a man after God's own heart. Those sins weren't, but his heart to repent and to want to walk with the Lord, even though he blew it, but God was merciful. And so we have so much to learn from Israel's strengths and successes and our nation's failures. And that's what the New Testament tells us. Look to Israel to learn not so much about Israel, but about the God of Israel. Mm, that's beautiful. That's a great picture of God's love for Israel through time, despite the challenges and despite the differing views. I love this conversation because as an evangelical who loves Israel and who really cares about how evangelicals act and are seen in the modern world so that we can be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, 
this is really helpful. This is a really helpful unpacking of why evangelicals should love and do love the state of Israel and the people, the I Jewish people. That. And, and, and let me just make a, a note that it's important for those who are listening, um, whatever their theological background and whatever their political views, it's important to know that for American evangelicals, we have to be very careful that we don't associate our biblical love for Israel with a particular political party. And, right. I, and I say that because one of the troubles that are, is going on right now, and we may want to pick this up in another episode, especially with mm-hmm. young evangelicals, but if you think that being pro-Donald Trump means being mm-hmm. pro-Israel and evangelicals are therefore pro-Trump because we're pro-Israel and blah, 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 and if you have, I don't know, any sort of negative feeling towards mm-hmm. Donald Trump, past, present, or future, you may associate that with Israel. You may associate that with the Republican Party and with evangelicalism. And therefore, if Trump was for it, I'm against it. You know that. So that's important to to be careful about that. It's hard for people because it. I would argue that Trump was the most pro-Israel president in the history of the country. But I've been outspoken that even though I'm, I'm critical of, of a number of positions that President Biden has taken on abortion or you know, other issues, uh, we don't want to get into it. But the point is on Israel, he's been pretty good. Yeah. And, and, and I just mean that to say I am trying to be an evangelical who, who recognizes first and foremost is about theology. It's about the Bible. It's about hearts. It's about the church. It's about loving people in Israel and her neighbors. Yeah. But politics do get involved. And so, you know, the Bible says give honor where honor is due. If a president that I may agree with or disagree with on a wide range of issues, whether it's Biden or Trump, if they do good things about the U.S.-Israel relationship, then those things I think should be credited. Yeah. You know, and so I just want to say that we have to be careful. And and um, Israel itself is having a conversation right now among its political leaders. Have we gotten so close to President Trump and the Republican Party because they were so helpful for us over the previous four years that we are in danger of not having healthy relationships with pro-Israel people in the Democratic Party? And, and so again, I'm not trying to get into politics, but. Politics come to the fore when you're dealing with Israel. It, you can't 100% separate it. And so I just want to say that as a caution for evangelicals who love Israel to make it based on the Bible and not necessarily rah-rah for a political party, even though you may have a rah-rah feeling towards either candidate or either party or whatever. But but we have to make sure, especially our young people are listening. That's right. And um, they are not as excited about Israel as yeah, that, parents and grandparents. That is an interesting topic. And I would say it is vital that we maintain and continue to talk about this idea that we can't reduce theology to political positions. Yeah. Because if we do, then we undermine the entire fabric that God wants us to reach out to all people. God didn't come to earth to form a political party or a political persuasion. He came 
to redeem all of mankind. And honestly, I found this podcast to be one of my most helpful ones. Uh, Mm -hmm. Joel, thank you. This is a remarkable look at the unique relationship between Israel, the Jewish people, and evangelicals around the world, and how that came to be and how that comes to be. I loved your picture of the uh, thunder followed by the lightning and um and then the lightning steroids, on steroids. Exactly so i got to work on my i got to work on my analogies but anyway <laughs> well uh, i'd like it, to say that i guess interesting i i hope it's right you exactly. never know what he's going to say <laughs> you never know you never know with this inside the epicenter podcast that's true uh, to everyone, again, thank you, Joel. Thank you, listeners. If you've found this podcast valuable, please get in touch with us. Let us know who you are. We, we love to find out who's listening, and many, many of you have gotten in touch with us. We thank you for that. Do you want to talk about some other topics on this show? Let us know. Uh, if you have a question you want Joel to answer, go to joshuafund.com and click Contact Us. Feedback from you is incredibly important and invaluable to this podcast. And as always, if you want to check out anything we've talked about and anything we've referenced during the course of this podcast or other podcasts, check out the show notes on the bottom of the page. So for Joel Rosenberg and Inside the Epicenter podcast, the Joshua Fund, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this podcast. considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, or art to make, or perhaps businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, Search and follow the Messenger Movement podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.